Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonillo. On this episode, I am very happy to bring the conversation I had with Nicholas Morton. Nicholas is Associate Professor of History at Nottingham Trent University. He is also a member of the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict. Uh, much of his main research areas are on the Crusades and medieval near history between the 10th and 14th centuries. He is the author of numerous books, including his more recent book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. And that's what we talk about in this conversation. We talk about the background and the overview of many of the different uh, people groups. The, we talk about the Turks. We talk about the Khwarezmian uh, Empire. We talk about how the Mongols conquered and governed administratively. We talk about the environmental scope of the Mongols, religious tolerance, centralized hierarchy, the Fifth Crusade, how they eventually splintered, and many more topics. Uh, this is the the Mongols are an absolutely fascinating uh, group. Um, I, I really enjoy reading about them and understanding them, uh, including the time period uh, all, all across the steppe in central Eurasia and into um, into what's modern day Turkey and even a little bit into into uh, kind of uh, Eastern Europe. Um, it's quite amazing their how they did things and how they were very, very um, organized and both administratively and, and uh, in many other ways. Obviously, there's some pretty brutal aspects to their history for sure. Um, Nicholas was so, so balanced in his book and in the conversation and really trying to explain all of the ins and outs. Uh, he's just fantastic. And uh, his his research is great. All of his books are wonderful. And, and I really enjoyed The Mongol Storm. So he's worth uh, he's worth supporting as well. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. So follow, like, subscribe, share with your friends, contribute. Um, it always makes me uh, happy to see people subscribe. If you like this conversation, I guarantee you uh, there are other conversations like this uh, on the podcast. So it's, uh, it's always something for everyone out there. So uh, if you like what I'm doing... Uh, just uh, show your support and uh, at least uh, give it a su subscribe and share with many people always helps and it's um, always much appreciated so now I bring you Nicholas Morton I am here with Nicholas Morton uh, Nicholas thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast I'm excited to uh, to talk with you thanks so much for having me yeah, on the show absolutely you have written a fantastic book um, which I'm Excited to get into. Um, many listeners will know that I have a kind of a fascination with this period and this group of folks. Uh, the book is called The Mongol Storm, uh, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. Uh, the Mongols are absolutely fascinating. And your book was extremely well written. It was informative. You take a big chunk of, you know, basically this, you know, 13th century and just kind of walk us through everything. So it's great. Um, so before we get into it, just uh, tell listeners uh, who you are professionally and academically and uh, what, you're, what you're currently doing. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Nicholas Morton, and I'm the course leader for history at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. A uh, bit of background, I started uh, my academic career, oh gosh, a couple of decades ago, studying the um, Teutonic Knights, who are one of the sort of the military orders, a bit like the Templars or Hospitallers. Mm. And since then, I've researched Crusaders and Seljuk Turks and Ayyubids, 
But really, my area of interest is the Middle East during the medieval period, which then led naturally on to the Mongol invasions into the Middle East, which is uh, the subject mm. of my book. Mm, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because in the book, we get these cameos or we get these kind of other players in there. You do mention a little bit of the Crusades. You mention uh, various other empires in the region. So it is interesting how it's, it is about the Mongols, but not almost exclusively. It really is kind of in, in the Near East and in this particular period, which is, um, which is very, very, very nice. So I guess you're, you're talking a little bit about how you, you kind of came to the book and how you were, you were starting it and things like that and kind of your, your uh, focus and your emphasis on things. And so I guess for, for the first kind of, you know, kind of main question to kind of get us in here is, you know, how do we understand, you know, accurately the Mongol Empire? Many people have had all of these kind of ideas. They were barbarians. They were, you know, they would, you know, kill people and they were pretty brutal, which isn't necessarily untrue, but there's a lot more uh, to them than that. And so you you start by, I think in the beginning, in the introduction chapter, you talk about the, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, uh, Quar- Quarzamenian Empire, which is uh, might be unfamiliar to many yeah. people. Quarzmian, uh, yeah. It was unfamiliar to me. So, and you kind of just give this example of how they overtook this empire and, and kind of just moved west. Um, so anyways, yeah, just kind of give us the landscape of the Mongols, who they were, uh, and kind of how, as an example of how they started taking over uh, and, um, you know, looking to go over many of these empires and conquer them. And then, you know, how they managed in uh, their time out uh, further west. Sure. I think the starting point to your question there is a really important question. How do you understand the Mongols? Mm. And I think I think that the, the, the most important way of starting that conversation is to realize that it's exceptionally difficult. Whatever you think you know about the way in which life, the world, society operates, you can't assume that any of your points of reference that make sense to you in terms of understanding your own society can be translated into understanding how the Mongol Empire operated. It is a fundamentally different way of life, not just to the modern world, but to the agricultural societies on which countries like the UK or America are based. So you've got to be able to make the mental jump from a modern-day Western society to a fundamentally different way of thinking and understanding the world. And that's difficult, and it requires... It requires a lot of working back on what you think you know. And that's only one of the levels of complexity, because the other one is that we have so few sources. Mm. The Mongols didn't write stuff down. Stuff that was written down for them was written by other people. So our way of understanding the Mongols is through the eyes of others. And those include people who are trying to win their favor by saying whatever they think the Mongols will want to hear. It involves people who are encountering them and have no points of reference themselves. They haven't, they're struggling to understand their, their culture mm. themselves. And you have those who are writing about the Mongols from a position of absolute terror because they've seen what happened to the next door civilization and they know very well that they're next. So how do you understand a society 
given those complexities. And it's difficult. It's extremely difficult. But that's also, in a sense, what makes it such a wonderful exercise as a historian, because the, the, the hurdles are just that high. You've got so many walls to climb before you get anywhere close to it. And of course, the sting in the tail is that you have no way of knowing when you're close or when you're not, because you've got nothing to check it against. So you do the best you can. But I think acknowledging the scale of the challenge that you're faced when trying to understand the Mongols is the starting point, really. And then you can take it in from there and see how far you get. Now, linking the Mongols to the Khwarazmians, there's several things that can be said here. Mongols themselves, by the time they encountered the Khwarazmians, they've already gone through a period of substantial expansion. Uh, Genghis Khan, or Chinggis Khan, more accurately, he went through a period of losing several decades where he fought war after war in Mongolia, conquering various different societies, not just nomadic societies. Of course, the Mongols are famous for being pastoral peoples who take their flocks and herds from one area of grazing to another. In fact, Mongolia itself it has a fairly diverse range of different cultures, from the forest peoples of the Siberian belt to the north through to the uh, people who live in a sort of semi, semi-nomadic way of life and those who, are, who live a fully nomadic way of life. But the point is that through the last years of the 12th century and into the early years of the 13th, Chinggis Khan conquers all of them. And often the way he does it is to kill off the ruling elite of the people he has just destroyed and then to forcibly enroll the warriors and the, sort of the rank and file of families of that society into his society. So with every victory, his forces get bigger and more powerful. And, and that builds up momentum over time until eventually he feels strong enough to tackle areas such as northern China, which I don't need to tell your um, listeners is an enormously sophisticated and powerful yeah. territory. But he successfully conquers much of it. And as the expansion progresses, he gets closer and closer to the Khwarazmian Empire. Now, the Khwarazmian Empire is not his target. He's expanding on every single frontier. This is just one frontier among many. But for the Middle East, this is the crucial moment when he begins that process of expansion into what is for him, the Southwest. Now, the Khwarazmian Empire is interesting because they serve as a reminder that the Mongols are not unique. They're not the first people to do this. Two centuries before the Mongol expansion, there is another group of nomadic peoples led by a family called the Seljuks, and they expanded aggressively out of the Central Asian steppe region, much like the Mongols would later on, pushing to the southwest, conquering Persia, what's there would be Iran, and then further west into Iraq, Syria. Anatolia, Anatolia then being the eastern districts of the Byzantine Empire, which, of course, is the continuator of the Eastern Roman Empire, which then plays its part in the history of the Crusades and the origins of the Crusades and everything that follows from it, as well as a whole range of other things. But the Seljuk Turks, crucially, are Central Asian steppe peoples who conquer the Middle East. And their way of life is not so very different from the Mongols. In fact, when a Franciscan um, friar went to visit the Mongols, he said that the way you can tell the difference between a Turk 
and a Mongol is the Turks tie their tunics on one side and the Mongols tie their tunics on the other <laughs> side. And if that's the distinction between them, we're looking at very similar cultures. So the Mongols are not unique. This has happened before, two centuries before, it was the Seljuk Turks. And over time, the Seljuk Turk Empire broke apart. Its various um, regions acquired sort of dynasties that took power across the regions. The empire broke up. And among the most powerful of those sub-regions was the Khwarazmian dynasty, which then rose to power and established an empire centered on Persia, but embracing much of the frontier region facing the Central Asian steppe region. And this is the Khwarazmian Empire. So it's not so very different to the Mongols themselves. By this point, the Khwarazmians had converted to Islam, which is perhaps one of the most important distinctions between the Mongols and the Khwarazmians. But there are a lot of similarities. And the story goes like this. Now, there are lots of holes in this story. In some ways, it's got some sort of legendary qualities, but it's what we've got. And the story goes like this. The Mongols uh, sent out a band of merchants, around 500, to the border town of Batra, on the northern districts of the Khwarazmian Empire. And they wanted to trade in various goods from the Central Asian steppe and to exchange those for goods from the Khwarazmian Empire. And they arrived, and something happened. We're not quite sure what, but the town governor called Inalchuk, he felt that he needed to arrest the Mongol merchants, and so he did. And he wrote to Sultan Muhammad, the ruler of the Khwarazmian Empire, requesting instructions about what to do with all these merchants that he had taken captive. And the instructions were very clear. He should kill all of them. And he didn't actually carry out that instruction to the letter because one survived. Of course, one was all that was necessary to get back to Chinggis Khan and report what had happened. And this is not someone you want to anger. A month or so later, or very, very soon later, Chinggis Khan arrived with a full-scale invasion army, besieged Batra, took Inalchuk himself captive, and then executed him by pouring molten metal down his throat. And this is the beginning of the Mongol invasion into the Khwarazmian Empire. And so in the years that followed, city after city fell. And the way the Mongols did this was to conquer one city, and then round up as many able-bodied people from that city as possible, and then drive those people to the next city, where they would then be forced to attack the city walls in the first wave. And of course, the defenders would then mow them down with catapults and crossbows and bows. But of course, in doing so, they expend their ammunition. So that once all, that, all those people have been killed, and the defenders have run out of things to hurl at the next wave, the Mongols can then send their actual troops in to attack. And this happens over and over again. But crucially, the Khwarazmians don't try and meet the Mongols in the battlefield. They hold back. They break up their army between their various fortress cities, which means they can be defeated piecemeal. Mm. And so the, west, the eastern districts of the Khwarazmian Empire begin to fall. Afghanistan falls the steppe borders fall, and the Mongols begin their advance. Now, they don't destroy the empire 
in its entirety at this point. But they send a flying column south of the Caspian Sea through what today would be northern Iran and up through the Caucasus through what today would be Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, southern Russia, and then round the top of the Caspian Sea um, back to Mongol territory. And en route, army after army went out to try and meet this flying column in battle, and the Mongols defeated every single one. Often, often, it wasn't even close. And this is the moment when the Middle East wakes up to the fact that there is a very, very serious threat on their doorstep and that no one has found a way yet of being able to do anything about it. That's very interesting. It's it's very, very, very interesting how there, it's almost like uh, waking a sleeping giant, if you will, right? It's like, okay, you, you, we didn't know what we did. And now, but it's interesting how it wasn't just like a, a, a kind of like a revenge story only or a retaliation story only. It was like, okay, we're going to do this and then we're going to keep going and we're going to keep going. You're trying to take out an entire empire. I mean, that's, and especially one is, you know, you listed all the places. I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of peoples, a lot of land. And then to actually do it uh, successfully is no wonder that the Middle East would be like, uh-oh, uh, who, who, who is this whole, uh, uh, you know, a horde of people over here that are coming in and kicking our ass and <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Yeah, absolutely. And there are several factors that would have really captured people's attention. The flying column I mentioned that won battle after battle, it was mm. small, possibly not more than 20,000 mm. troops, which, is, which should be more than um, defeatable mm. enough, if that's a way of putting it, by the people they're meeting. But they lose over and over mm. again. And it's not just the Khwarazmians. They lose several times, but also the Kingdom of Georgia, the the, the various Armenian leaders, local Turkish rulers, they all send out armies to try and defeat the Mongols, but they don't succeed. Mm. And what makes it even more conspicuous is that this flying column's unsupported. There's no logistics train behind it. There's no reinforcements being fed forward to make up their losses. They're just, just by themselves. And yet they can enter a territory mm. and defeat it and move on and do it over and over again. This is not how war mm -hmm. is fought in the Middle East or pretty much anywhere else. This is it's like a tidal wave sweeping through. In fact, one um, historian actually described this as a Mongol tsunami. Mm. This is a wave sweeping across the entire region and no one can seem to stop it. And the level of terror people are feeling at this time, it's so extreme that we hear stories from the, these days. I mean, for example, one story says that one a single Mongol warrior could enter a village and say, okay, everyone, um, just everyone come into the central square and the warriors walk through and kill mm -hmm. them all or tie them all up and there's nothing they can do about it and they're so terrified they don't dare resist and that becomes a weapon of war in its own right if you can't stop an enemy if there's literally nothing you can do then of course your own troops start to back away from the battlefield before the enemies even come mm -hmm. into sight so terror becomes starts to do, the, do the, the Mongols' work for them. And of course, the Mongols' own soldiers, because they are meeting with victory after victory, that has a compounding effect. They gain experience, morale, and a sense of certainty that they are going mm. to win. 
because they always have. So how do they, how do they go? How do they, they, you talk about how they, they take over the Khwarezmian empire, the Ayyubid empire, the crusaders, the Anatolian Sujuks, like all of these different empires and groups in the region going from, you know, as far as Mongolia, where they're at, all the way through what we know today in the Mideast, you know, in terms of, you know, Iraq, Iran, Syria, uh, basically Eastern Turkey, um, you know, this whole region. Um, how, how, you know, it, it, this, this kind of tsunami you're saying, this, this storm that just comes through, there's the terror piece of it, but you still have to, I mean, you know, you still have to, to, to fight and people are going to fight against them. And it, it wasn't all easy, but how did they, how did they dominate? Right. But also I think what is interesting to me is yes, they were seen as, you know, pretty barbaric and they were pretty ruthless, but you also have to manage and govern all of these places. And it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of land. I mean, today, you know, nation states can't govern pretty, pretty, pretty well, right? Now, granted, it wasn't as many people, but still, you're talking about people across millions of uh, uh, miles. And how we're, and, and we can, this is a separate point, but we, you know, I'll bring it up here if you want to uh, sweep it in here as well. The amount of diversity that was there in terms of different people groups, different ethnicities, different religious groups, which is huge. How did they, how do they administratively govern and manage all of these places that they're conquering? Sure. So um, take the invasion element of this first. The Mongol, inv- the Mongol invasions into the Middle East took place in waves. So the first big wave was this reconnaissance around the Caspian. And after that, there's a sort of 10-year mi- lull mm. when no further invasions happen and you could forgive people for thinking, well, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe we've experienced the worst until in 1230, another wave comes in. And this one's much more comprehensive. It's this one that finishes off the Khwarazmian Empire. It's this one in, in the 1230s, conquers Armenia and Georgia in their entirety. And then in 1243, it's this wave that brings to battle the Anatolian Seljuks, defeats them and forces them to accept client status under Mongol rule, which effectively brings modern Turkey, or much of it, so the eastern, um, the cent- central mm-hmm. regions, under Mongol hegemony. Then there's another yeah. gap, another lull, until in the 1250s, the brother of the, of the great Khan, and this brother is called Hulugu, he leads another massive army into the Middle East, essentially to conquer anything that's left. So in 1256, his armies take the strongholds of the Nazaris, who are often known as the Assassins, uh, in Persia. And then in 1258, this enormous army, over 100,000 strong, laid siege to Baghdad and then sacked the city of Baghdad. Enormous loss of life. And this is one of the most brutal deeds of the Mongol Empire in the Middle East, the sack of Baghdad in 1258. Following that, the Mongols advance further west into Syria and the Ayyubid Empire. That's the empire that had been founded originally by Saladin. And that empire collapses within within only a few weeks. And then the Mongols press on towards the coast. 
Now, the uh, along the coast is what's left of the Crusader states, which are the territories founded by the Crusaders during the First Crusade, about 150 years previous, 160 years previously. The northernmost of the Crusader states, called the Principality of Antioch, that accepts Mongol hegemony, so it submits to the Mongols. The southern Crusader states, particularly the Kingdom of Jerusalem, tries to negotiate, tries to find a way of negotiating without submitting. But this is this is the outer extent of the wave, as it were, to use uh, that, that analogy. This is how the Mongol conquest happens. But you're right. How do they hold down so much territory? Because the Mongol armies were mm-hmm. big, or they could mm-hmm. be big. They start off some fairly small. The first one's about 20,000 strong. Second one's about 30,000. The next one's over 100,000. But even so, this total number of Mongol warriors is not, is not particularly large, because you're quite right. This is an extraordinarily diverse region. In the Caucasus, you have Armenian and Georgian Christians. In Anatolia, you have a Turkish ruling elite governing a very, very diverse population, much of which would have been Orthodox Christian. In Syria, you have Syriac Christians, you have Sunni and Shia Muslims, you have Nizari Muslims, you have various different groups within Shia Islam as well. You have Sufis and Dervishes, you have Jews and Samaritans. There's so much complexity and diversity in the regions. The Mongols are conquering what is, by medieval standards, quite a densely populated and a very diverse region. So you're absolutely right to pose the question, how do you govern somewhere like that? In the early days, what seems to have happened is the Mongols, they didn't fan out. So it's not that they broke up their armies and put various contingents in the big cities or anything like that. The Mongols tend to stick to southern Anatolia, the northern Jazeera region, or sort of northern Syria, which is, um, has a quite a lot of um, grassland. And of course, the Mongols, being nomadic, are looking for grassland because, well, why wouldn't they be? They've got their huge uh, flocks and herds with them. And if you'll forgive me a slight uh, aside on this, I think that one of the truly phenomenal sites of the Mongol civilization would have been their cities. Mm. Because these aren't cities with houses and palaces, mm. as most civilizations that we're familiar mm. with would. These are wagon mm-hmm. cities. And literally, if you were standing on a hilltop looking down or across these cities, you'd see thousands, tens of thousands of wagons, big wagons. Um, We're told that the axles of these wagons could be the thickness of a ship's mast. So these are huge vehicles. Tens of thousands of wagons, and then hundreds of thousands of people around these wagons, and then beyond them, millions of animals. We're told that it could take several days to cross from one side of a Mongol encampment to mm. another. And so the sheer panorama of that must have been truly breathtaking. But the Mongols rule from these encampments, and these encampments move slowly from their various grazing grounds, from their spring to winter grazing grounds, because that's their, the cycle of their life. As for the territories, the cities, the towns, the villages, the communities that they rule, they may go from year to year not seeing a single Mongol warrior. They may be a Mongol appointee or bureaucrat, perhaps, certainly to collect the taxes, but they may not see them. 
that doesn't mean that Mongol rule is inefficient because, of course, they know perfectly well that if they don't pay their taxes, dot, mm -hmm. dot, dot, then things are not going to go so well for them. So the Mongols, had that, that's the sort of the basics of it. It's, it's ruled by, the, by encampment city based on the knowledge that if people do not do as they're told, that there will be repercussions. Mm. But one of the most extraordinary phenomena of the Mongol invasions is how people responded mm -hmm. to them. Because we're familiar with, I think, um, a Hollywood, or if we read novels about this, we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of narrative arc that we expect, and it goes something like this. Invader invades, subjugates the population. The population suffers. Then someone rises up and says, enough. Mm -hmm. We have suffered enough. Uh -huh. And people go, yes, we've suffered enough. And there's a montage as they gather support and hoard their mm -hmm. weapons and train, and then they go out, they fight the invader. There's a big, big battle, and then they throw off the invader and peace and happiness um, reigns supreme. And Hollywood makes another couple of hundred thousand or over a million. million. Sorry, I shouldn't say. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's an uprising, and uh, yeah, the good guys, the underdog wins. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. If there's one thing, certainly, I'm not an expert on the early modern or modern periods, but I see little difference why it should, why it should, the reason why it should be different. Resistance doesn't happen when the pressure, the downward pressure from the conqueror, is greatest. Mm. Resistance happens when it's plausible, hmm. and it wasn't plausible. You're not going to win in this scenario. Everyone's tried. Everyone's failed. You're not going to win, which means you've got to radically change your thinking. You can't fight the Mongols in battle. There's no point trying some kind of Robin Hood situation where you try and sort of conduct guerrilla warfare. It's not going to work. It doesn't operate like that. So you do the opposite. You resist with a charm offensive. You tell the invader how great it is that they've invaded. You celebrate their actions. You tell them that this is God's judgment. It's God speaking that they should have been so successful. And what you're doing by adopting that, this is not simple capitulation. It's much more sophisticated, is you are working your way into the good graces of the invader, because ultimately, if you do work your way into their good graces, if you gather taxes diligently, if you, if you legitimize the invader's conquest, if you celebrate their achievements, if you make yourself useful, then maybe, just maybe, you can start to acquire some leverage. And the early things that you'll be looking for will be things like protection for your own family, for your own community. But then if you get ambitious, and people did get ambitious over time, you can start to aspire for something a little bit bigger. What if you can convert the Mongols, a, Mon a key Mongol leader to your religion? Well, that opens up a whole new realm of possibilities. And so it's interesting. Despite the devastation caused by the Mongol invasions, you don't hear many people criticizing it, certainly, certainly not from within more Mongol um, within the Mongols' own borders. Externally, yes. You do, however, find lots of people who are willing to take the journey to the Mongol court to 
to win the Mongols' favour because they want to try and win preferential treatment for themselves. And so as long as the Mongols can maintain that sense of inevitability, that irresistibility for their empire, they're not going anywhere because it's actually incentivizing the people they have conquered to come to their court and tell them just how great they are. That's very interesting. I haven't heard that that piece of it, but that makes a lot of sense because if you're looking around and you're like, listen, we can't defeat these guys. They're they're going, you know, to the empire next door and just absolutely obliterating them. What are we going to do? You know, we're just, you know, a bunch of uh, sheep herders or whatever, or horse farmers. Like what are we going to do, right? Well, there's not much we can do here. <clears throat> so in that lifestyle, so give us a, give a you, you did a little bit there, uh, but give us a, a kind of um, picture of the environmental landscape. You, you kind of do this in the book of, you know, this mobile city, right? Which is fascinating. It's a fascinating, it, it's just, it's just when you, when you get the details kind of you were describing, it's, it's incredible, but yeah, commercial cities, trade routes, farmland and grazing, strategic fortresses, religious sites, all of these were huge in the 13th century. Uh, what, what did it? What did it? What did it look and feel like to live in the 13th century and in, in, in the Near East? So the first we've, we've we've already covered the basics, and the basics are just the diversity of the landscape. Mm-hmm. There are religious buildings for multiple faiths, and it gets more complicated under the Mongols. You actually got the the migration into the Middle East of a large community of Buddhists, mm-hmm. for example, not formally a major presence in the Middle East. But because of the sheer scale of the Mongol Empire, that is now possible. So it becomes more diverse and more complex. And intersecting with the diversity of of these various communities, you have big trade routes. Now, most trade routes are local. And so you hear about metalwork from Damascus, or you hear about uh, the great markets of Aleppo, or the carpets of the Turkmen Mm -hmm. tribes of Anatolia. Mm -hmm or the slave markets of Tabriz. I mean, Tabriz is actually a huge importance. There's there's all sorts of things to sell there. Or you you hear about leather leather goods from the Arabian Peninsula, uh, pearls from the Indian Ocean, and not just things that are within the Mongols' own borders, but all sorts of things come into the Mongol Empire, particularly towards the Mongols' big um, courts. Because what the Mongols have done is they haven't just invaded, of course, like every other um, human community conducting an invasion, they want to acquire wealth. And so by this point, they've conquered the better part of Eurasia, which means that tens of civilizations, all those courts, all that gold, all those jewels, all those silk, silk clothes, all those things of value, they have all been taken. And the Mongols are keen to, set, to sell them which means that you have the beginning of a redirection of, the, of trade at a continental scale, rewiring itself to focus on the Mongols' great wagon cities, on their main centers, because that's where the wealth is. And of course, every merchant, everyone in business knows perfectly well, you follow the money. Why wouldn't you? If the Mongols want something, you'll supply it because they can afford it. They've got the money to spend. And so this too affects the life of people in the Middle East and elsewhere, because they now have to cater for the Mongols' interests. They have to adapt themselves and what they're offering to accommodate the Mongols' own 
preferences, what they're after. So, for example, when the Mongol army arrives outside Tabriz, the reason that the commander spares the textile workers in the cities, he says, okay, I want an incredible, incredible tent, and you're going to make one for me. And we'll look at the tent, and once we've had a look at it, we will decide what we're going to do with you. And so they produce a tent, and fortunately for them, the Mongol commander, Chormakun, is pleased with it. Um, it doesn't probably bear thinking about what would have happened if he wasn't pleased with it. But the, this is the point. It's the Mongols' preferences that now determine the direction of flow for trade, but also the content of that flow as well. So people's lives are being changed, not just through the nature of the invasion itself, not just through their responses to those in, that invasion, but the economic redirection of everything that they used to know that's all shifting too. So life is changing at a fundamental level. Another dimension to this, which is fascinating, is that the Mongols do practice something that is, well, it's often referred to as religious tolerance. Mm -hmm. Now, some historians get very excited about this and sort of suggest this is perhaps the roots of modern concepts of tolerance as we might have them today. I, I'm a little bit uh, cynical about that, but there is something to the idea. And it goes something like this, that the Mongols felt, no, they didn't feel, they knew, this is a certainty, they knew they had a right to rule all human civilization across the entire planet. That is a right they felt they, had, they knew they had received from Tengri, the eternal sky, the spiritual force that orders the world they have a right on that basis. Now, because of that, that means that all the world civilized, all the world civilizations, all their communities, all those towns, villages, and cities, they have a responsibility in the Mongols' eyes to acknowledge Mongol overlordship. And as such, they are equal in their subjugation to the Mongol Empire, which means that in the Middle East, for example, where one religion might have been um, in the sort of the dominant position over another, that's gone. Mm. So the dominance of any one religion over any other religion, that has been wiped away because the Mongols are now in charge. And so the rulers and ruled of yesterday now have to contemplate, and contemplate today as equals, which would have been an enormous upheaval for many peoples because suddenly they have to operate on an equal basis with the people who yesterday used to treat them very differently. Mm. So again, a fundamental reordering of society. And the Mongols have their own ideas about this because they see the various communities that they've conquered as assets. And they, have, they want to use these assets for things that are of value to them. So when they sack a city, they may go to considerable lengths to make sure that the artisans, particularly the really good ones in the city, are spared. Not necessarily their families, but the artisans themselves. And as soon as they have conquered the city and rounded up these artisans, they may send them off to the other end of the empire. They could send them to China or Mongolia or anywhere else, wherever they are deemed to be of most value to the Mongol empire, because they are deemed to be assets. Religious leaders are also seen to be assets because they are deemed to have religious power. Yeah. And that is true from the Mongols' perception of pretty much all the religions they've conquered, especially religions like Christianity and Islam. And so what they want from these religious leaders 
is they want them to channel their religious power for the betterment of the Mongol Empire, the prosperity of the Mongol elites, and specifically the health and long life of the Mongol imperial dynasty. And so, in a sense, religions are seen like assets to be used. Religious leaders as people who have power, irrespective of their religion, but they are required to channel that power for the Mongols' own interests. So this so again, this doesn't sound like yeah. a bunch of fundamentalists running around killing people, right? This doesn't sound like a bunch of just you know caveman barbarians that just want power and that's it. I mean, this is very methodical, diplomatic, if you will, if you want to, we can use that term loosely. Um, you know, kinds of ways of of at least managing and organizing these things, seeing the power that how religion can move people and how it's important for people and, you know, to probably prevent uprisings or people trying to, to, to uprise or things like that. There's, there's a, a kind of savviness to, 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 to this way of, of, of governing. There is a, there is an order to, to, to this kind of way of doing things. Yeah. One thing we can say with absolute certainty about the Mongol Empire is it is sophisticated. Mm, mm. This is a complex culture. It is a society that is highly hierarchical. It has very, very clearly defined moral and spiritual boundaries of what is acceptable, what isn't. This is by no means an unsophisticated society which is just sort of unleashed on the world. To give you a a point of comparison here, when the first crusade, which is going back over a century mm-hmm. before the period we're talking about, when the first crusade arrived in the Middle East, it conquered Jerusalem, Antioch, a few other towns and cities, and a, basically a coastal strip um, along the Levantine coast. That's the coast of the Eastern Mediterranean. That's it. And the crusaders, I mean, I'm not making sort of moral judgments about them, but just from a purely military perspective, they are deemed to be an effective military force. Mm-hmm. If we talk about the conquests of other famous warriors from other cultures in the medieval period, perhaps someone like Saladin, for example, yeah, he won lots of battles. He built, he built and built out an empire for himself. And again, from a military perspective, he is deemed to have accomplished a great deal. The Mongols conquered an area of land from the Pacific seaboard to the borders of Hungary and Poland in the west and to the borders and to um, Damascus in the southwest. Their forces are thought to have got as far as as Indonesia in the southeast and certainly into the jungles of areas such as uh, Myanmar today in Southeast Asia. The sheer scale of the Mongol Empire it so vastly outcompeted so many societies that we deem to be effective military societies of this era that we are looking at something, we are looking at a society that is deeply sophisticated. It can manage empires spanning tens of millions of square kilometers. It has things like the fast horse system, where, for example, they have a network of uh, road stations with horses and riders, the idea being that one rider gallops as fast as 
it possibly can from one station to another. The message is passed on, the next rider gallops, and so you can transfer a message over hundreds of miles in a single day. The Mongols are sophisticated. They have very complex structures, and perhaps most importantly, they're willing to learn. When they conquer an area, they don't just destroy it. They learn whatever that it can be, whatever can be of use from that society, and then adopt it themselves. And so this is a very dynamic society. Now, I'm not taking away from the brutality and loss of life involved in their conquests, but this is not, absolutely not, a sort of an unleashed force that's just indiscriminately raging through the area. The Mongols are very systematic about what they do, which I should point out can be impressive. It can also be fairly chilling mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask here, so with all of this land that they're uh, in charge of, how much is... Like, what's the kind of, um, I guess, nucleus in which they're funneling all of this stuff, right? It's very centralized. I mean, it would have to be, right? It's a big hierarchy. There's the, you know, whoever's the ruler the, and, and then all the way down, various generals. Like, But what's the kind of <clears throat> understanding politics and religion and really, you know, the psychology of people of, of throughout all of these lands of today, what are their wants? What are their needs? What are their desires? What motivates them? What doesn't? What's the kind of mm, worldview or the ethos of, of them that is kind of the, at the center of how they're governing or, 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 or being able to manage all of this? Sure. So the ethos is total, total global conquest. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite clear whether this was Chinggis Khan's concept, whether it emerged in the years afterwards, but that is certainly the Mongols' main mainspring of operation. Um, and it has to be said that if you are living in the 1220s or 1230s or 1240s, that would actually see, be, see, be looking really quite plausible. It wouldn't be sounding like arrogance or you know, overstatement. It, this, is, this is happening at that time. Hmm. But the way in which the Mongol Empire operates is it begins very much around the person of Chinggis Khan. And when Chinggis Khan dies, there is then a succession from one great Khan to another. Interestingly, there's often very long interregnums between the Mongols' great Khans. And in those interregnums, when it's the, often the widow of the former great Khan who rules as empress effectively mm. in those years until the next great Khan can be picked. So it's, it's a fascinating process. Um, there is a central ruler. Yes, absolutely. But there's another, th- there's another dimension to this as well, which is that particularly the descendants of Chinggis Khan, his various sons, they are granted areas of the empire as Ulu. And Ulu basically are areas of jurisdiction, areas that are under their control. Still part of the Mongol Empire, but areas that are theirs to govern in some way, shape, or form. The actual boundaries of what they can or can't do with those areas under their jurisdiction is unclear, and that leads to conflict. But that's the way it works. And it's often these Ulu that conduct the much of the sort of external campaigning. And so, for example, the Mongol wars of expansion into China or westwards across what today would be Russia and then Eastern Europe or indeed into the Middle East. But herein also lies the fault lines 
that will ultimately cause the Mongol Empire to break apart because these, the sons of Chinggis Khan, they create their own dynasties. They have their own sons and grandsons and daughters and granddaughters who then develop their own identity, their own sense of ownership over that part of the Mongol Empire. And rivalries break out between them until those rivalries break into violence and conflict. And this is really the crucial point. This has become very, very apparent in the 1260s when the Mongol Empire and its great armies of invasion, they swing away from the wars of expansion and swing towards internal wars fought between the various descendants of Chinggis Khan over who gets to rule which parts of the empire and who gets to be the next great mm. Khan. And it's that, it's that inwards turning of the Mongol mm. armies that is the, one of the critical factors in explaining why the Mongols didn't, in fact, go on to conquer Eurasia and I suppose ultimately Africa in its entirety in later years. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting, this kind of internal splintering of sorts. As, you know, it's, but, but it also speaks to the, the might both negative and positive, I guess, of Chinggis Khan because he was he was such a, a big a big figure. Um, so let's just walk through before we get to the kind of what you're describing as the kind of breakup of the Mongol Empire. Let's just maybe walk through some of the big uh, kind of uh, empires that are kind of uh, conquered. So we talked about the the first one, Cormazians. Uh, so maybe talk about this Fifth Crusade uh, being a failure in Egypt. Um, and, and what the Mongols' relationship was with the, the Crusaders. Uh, and then you can, you can talk about um, the, uh, what is it, the Ayyubid Empire? Um, yeah, and, sure. and then we can talk about some of the other ones. Okay, so a little bit of background. Um, going back before the Mongol invasions into the Middle East, in the 12th century, so the century before the one I deal with in my book, you have the advent of the Crusades and the creation of the Crusader states. And the Crusader states exist in a complex relationship, forming alliances, fighting wars against various neighboring powers, both Christian and Muslim. And by the end of the 12th century, you have the rise of a new empire led by a Kurdish leader called Salahaddin ibn Ayyub, or Saladin, as he's often known. And Saladin won a major victory over the Crusaders at the Battle of Hattin in 1187, which saw the largest of the Crusader states, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, uh, brought almost to the point of extinction. It mm. then uh, retrenched its position a little bit with the advent of the Third Crusade in the 1190s. But by the, by the start of the period we're interested in, so by, by the time the Mongols are, are, are approaching the city of Utra and the beginnings of their invasions into the Middle East. The Crusader states still survive, albeit in a much reduced form. And the Ayyubid Empire, the empire that Saladin created, is still very much there. It's a major power in Syria and mm. Egypt. But, but Saladin, by this point, um, he died many years before. It's now being ruled by his descendants, many of whom are embroiled in long-term rivalries with one another. And then in the, um, 12, in the 1210s, there is the arrival of the Fifth Crusade. And the Fifth Crusade is the papacy's most recent attempt to try and conquer Jerusalem. Now, the way the papacy wants to do this 
is to conquer Egypt first. The thinking there being that you can't just conquer Jerusalem because you couldn't hold it in the long term. You've got to take Egypt first because that's the economic powerhouse of the Middle East and then use Egypt's resources to then fund the permanent conquest or reconquest, depending on your perspective, of Jerusalem itself. And so in 1217, the Fifth Crusade arrives. It then lays siege to the coastal town of Damietta in Egypt. And this is an incredibly brutal siege. You've got the defenders in Damietta, the crusaders outside, the main Ayyubid field army trying to break the siege. It's all sorts of skirmishes and battles and raids taking mm. place. But Damietta does ultimately fall in 1219 to the crusaders. And this is a crisis moment for the Ayyubids because it does look very likely that Egypt in its entirety is going to fall. But it's at this time that news begins to arrive that there is an unfamiliar power somewhere out to the east advancing very rapidly. And they don't know who it is. No one does. And merchants and released prisoners of war reach the Crusader camp, and they report that they know who it mm. is. It's the armies of Prester John. And Prester John is a, an interesting character because about a century before this, so the story goes, someone arrived at the papal court reporting that somewhere out to the east in the Indies, as it was described, exactly where the Indies was placed in their, in their thinking is, isn't clear. It's not necessarily the same as India in the modern day sense. But somewhere out, out to the east was somewhere called the Indies, ruled over by a priest emperor called Prester mm. John, who ruled over an empire populated by monsters, believe it or not. And later on, the empire of Prester John would embrace areas such as an island home to the Fountain of Eternal Youth, the Caves of the Dragon Masters, I mean, they're, they're among a whole wide range of other stories, but perhaps most tantalizingly, the idea that the rivers in this area were filled with jewels and mm. gold. So Prester John rules over this empire in the European imagination. But it was believed that one day, Prester John would march to Christendom's aid. And so it was believed at this time, this is what's happening. This advancing army is Prester John leading an army to rendezvous with the Fifth Crusade and therefore to bring about the permanent conquest of Jerusalem. And so it's partly because of these rumours that having conquered Damietta, the crusading army waits. Mm. It waits for almost a year. It's not just for this reason. It's also waiting for the arrival of Emperor Frederick II of Germany, who in fact never arrives. But the crusade waits. It's only when it becomes clear that Prester John is not coming that they then advance and suffer a major defeat whilst trying to advance on Cairo. And the Fifth Crusade, mm -hmm. from a military perspective, is an enormous success mm -hmm. from the Ayyubids, who are able to defeat one of the biggest crusades in history. Mm -hmm. For the crusaders, of course, it's an enormous defeat. But it's interesting how the, the course of the Fifth Crusade gets tangled up, not with the Mongols exactly, mm. but with these garbled rumours of what the Mongols might be. And even for decades, the idea is that the, the, the Mongols are linked to Prester John. So there are stories, for example, that 
all right, the Mongols aren't Prestigeon, but perhaps they conquered Prestigeon first before then moving in to invade the Middle East. Mm. So the Prestigeon legend becomes very much tied up with the Mongols in some way, shape, or form. And that continues for decades. It's very interesting how you have these different uh, different groups, these different factions, and it seems like they all have... I mean, I guess this is true at any point, but they all have different... Mm, maybe not different motivations, but I guess different ways of getting what they want, right? And they're all these competing forces in you know, the same kind of area of sorts. And so this is what kind of, in my mind, makes the, you know, underscores the, you know, again, the might of the Mongols of how they're able to, you know, succeed, if you will, use that term in kind of air quotes, where others don't, right? How they're able to, to, to do all of these campaigns, but then also to maintain it, learning the ways, trying to do these things as opposed to imposing uh, some kind of doctrine or or some ideas or things like that, which is really, really interesting. Um, so can you tell us about the Anatolia Sildjuk? Uh Anatolia is a, I mean, again, it's a kind of a bedrock of many, 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 many <laughs> civilizations throughout our history of, of human humanity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, how the Mongols take them over. They also take over the the uh, Sicilians uh, in Armenia. Um, and so, Salisian Armenia. Yeah, and yeah. so there's these two big uh, groups of people that they also overtake. Um, but it's interesting the relationship that they have and how these displaced folks, uh, they are able to, in some ways, again, as you were saying earlier, generally adopt and learn and, uh, you know, how do they manage these things? Maybe talk about these two big groups and how the Mongols uh, interacted with with them, with them. Sure. So, yeah, one of the big questions that I went into this research project very much at the front of my mind was the question of, in situations like this, in, in times of intense warfare, intense suffering, who's, who actually survives? Not who do you think should survive? Mm. Who actually mm, survives mm. and who mm. doesn't. And you're right, Anatolia is fascinating for a whole range of reasons, not least the diversity of people within Anatolia itself, irrespective of the wider Middle East. The Anatolian Seljuks behave in a way that would probably be deemed very logical. They try and conduct diplomacy with the Mongols when they're far off, they try and sort out some kind of deal. For a time, they seem to have done that, then it broke. When it becomes clear that warfare is on their doorstep, they marshal their armies, then they're invaded, and they fight a big battle and lose. All of which seems fairly proportionate and sensible, and you know, you can see the arc of their thinking there, except of course it ends with ends in disaster. The Silesian Armenians do something very different. They do not don't re- respond in what might be described as a proportionate manner, because what they do is they submit to the Mongols before the Mongols have even invaded. They recognize they're not going to be able to hold the Mongols out. And so rather than waiting to be invaded, they submit immediately. And actually, they survive rather more effectively, certainly for a much longer period. They don't, because the Mongols appreciate the fact the Armenians have submitted. And as a result, the Armenians were able to negotiate for themselves a reasonably preferential situation for themselves in the Mongol Empire. So it makes a great what well, it's a very pragmatic choice they make, and it spares them the horrors of a Mongol invasion. Mm. 
But you're right too that against it's not just different states behaving in this way. There's huge numbers of refugees sweeping through the entire region. The number of displaced people set in motion by the Mongols is truly staggering. And you hear reports of Cairo growing enormously as refugees try and make a new home for themselves in Cairo. Some reach the Crusader states, some going beyond the Crusader states into places like Cyprus or the Mediterranean, and also into Anatolia. And among these, um, among these, you've got various different pe- peoples moving into Anatolia, large numbers of um, people from Persia bringing with them their own cultures and language. But you also have a large number of Turkmen communities. And these warrant close attention because Turkmen communities are nomadic communities. Mm. Many of them came into the Middle East as part of the Seljuk invasions I mentioned at the start of our our chat um, at the time of the Seljuk invasions. And many of them are displaced by the Mongols, and they move west to get out of the Mongols' way. And many end up in western Anatolia, so just outside the Mongols' grasp. And they become numerous. They have many effective fighters in their ranks, and they begin to create territories for themselves. And as the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate splinters, fragments, and falls apart under Mongol hegemony, in part because the Mongols um, have hugely, hugely high tax demands on the Seljuks, but also because of a series of wars of resistance fought by the Seljuks or various other satellites around them, in the um, central regions of Anatolia, the west of Anatolia goes its own way. And so what you have over time, particularly as the Mongol Empire and the Mongol invasions begin to dwindle, is you have the rise of Beyliks, Turkmen Beyliks, small territories in western Anatolia ruled over by individual families who in time become very powerful and they fight amongst themselves. They also fight against what's left of the Byzantine Empire. And it's very notable that among the ranks of these Beyliks is a family called the Ottomans. <laughs> and of course, this is the deep origins yeah. of the Ottoman Empire. And it's thought, and one of the stories told about the deep, deep origins of the Ottomans is that perhaps they too were once a family or a community forced to move west to kick out of the Mongols' way, but who then gathered with other Turkmen groups in Western Anatolia. And this then was the environment in which they were able to put down roots and create the foundations of the Ottoman Empire, which, of course, would go on to be a crucial player in the history of the region and the wider world for centuries oh, yeah. to come. That's interesting how you see the roots there. Uh, that starts with this, <clears throat> the Mongols kind of, uh, uh, you know, displacing the, the Anatolian uh, Sijuks. But then out of that, there's this smaller group where you have this family of the Ottomans that come from that. And then they have their own empire for over 600 years. I mean, it's just fairly interesting to see uh, some of the origins of these things and the interactions with some of these things where there's a kind of, you know, when there's, you know, empires don't last forever, obviously, but uh, it's always curious to know, you know, how they, how they, how they gain, 
I'm more interested in the how they maintain because I think it, basically governing <laughs> or or having um, some type of, of rule, if you will. And, you know, it, the downfall of empire is always interesting, too, because a lot of the times it's not fast. And, you know, in a couple of years, it's many times, you know, long and drawn out, much like the famous, you know, Roman Empire. But uh, it's interesting here how this how this uh, how this happens. And so what about the, the, uh, the Armenians? Now, Armenia is another fascinating place, right? This is this fascinating place where uh, in other podcasts I've had, uh, both in modern history and even more, more uh, uh, history past, Armenia always kind of maintains this center of independence, right? Even um, I had a podcast with uh, 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 Goldsworthy, Adrian Goldsworthy. And okay. um, talking about how there was this kind of 700-year conflict rivalry, ups and downs between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. But Armenia is like right in between, right? <laughs> right? And they always kind of keep their independence. I think partly is because of their terrain. Uh, it's, it's pretty treacherous mountains in that kind of border region. Uh, but also kind of culturally as well. They kind of have this kind of preservation of sorts of keeping their own ways of doing things. So what, what can we say about the Ar- Armenia here and their interactions with, with uh, the Mongols? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 the Armenian culture is enormously ancient and rich, even by this, even by this period. It's been, the Armenians have been there for centuries, as you quite rightly say, going right the way back to classical civilization. Yeah. And it's a very vibrant culture, a very vibrant religious culture, too. Some incredible uh, works of art and illuminated manuscripts and other sort of really high quality textiles and, and other goods. So yeah, um, um, the Armenians are an enormously sophisticated culture. At this point, they um, there are two main areas of Armenian settlement. There's Greater Armenia in the Caucasus near Georgia, which the Mongols conquered by force in the 1230s, and there's the Kingdom of Silesian Armenia, which submits to the Mongols in the, tw- in the 1240s. Uh, so they got they have rather different experiences. Mm. Um, in Silesian Armenia, the Arme- as I mentioned, the Armenians submit to the Mongols early and send lots of ambassadors, including their own king, to the Mongol Empire in order to maintain that relationship. But crucially, the Mongols don't feel it necessary to maintain a garrison mm. in Armenia, which, of course, would have been an enormous relief for the Armenians because that's not something you want if you're a Mongol satellite state. But there's lots of interesting stories of the interaction of the Armenian people and their Mongol overlords, because they now have to negotiate a life and a future for themselves within the Mongol system. And there's some interesting stories about that. So, for example, we hear about one Armenian nobleman who was sent as an emissary to the Mongol Empire. So he arrives at, um, I forget which court it was, but the court of one of the big Mongol leaders. And the Mongol leader is pleased with how the Armenians have behaved. And so as a show of enormous benevolence, the Mongol leader grants this Armenian nobleman a Mongol wife. What higher distinction could there be? Except the Armenian uh, nobleman's already got a wife. Oh, no. And of course, he's coming from a Christian culture where you only get to have one wife. And so that raises all sorts of difficulties. The Mongols have bestowed this enormous privilege upon you. 
Are you going to say no? Because the consequences of saying no will be considerable and not, not either in your interests or those of your people. Or do you breach religious law and accept the Mongol wife? Well, at the, it, so there's not really a choice here. I'm not, I'm not making out that this is, some, this is a situation where he gets to choose. Of course, he's going to have to accept um, this Mongol wife, but it creates all sorts of difficulties when it comes to these cultural interactions because, of course, there are plenty of religious laws and secular laws practiced by the Armenians as there are for every other society in the Middle East. And the Mongols don't mind too much if you carry, out, carry on living your culture, living out your religion. They don't mind so much, except where it crosses over with their own interests or their own culture. And that's where you get a problem. It's, just, it's again, it's interesting, right? Because it's like they're, they're very, very willing to, um, you know, kind of uh, allow people to practice their religious beliefs or their cultures, uh, cultural beliefs or whatever. But right, if it does bump into their wider kind of hierarchy of, of how they do things, well, then it's a, then, then it is a big problem. And, and so of course you don't want to mess with them. So yeah. It has to make sense within their world. Yeah. 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 Which, which I mean, I mean, I guess like that's, I mean, I guess one could understand that. So tell, it's like every other, invader I was going to say, right. This say. isn't like the first, this is a novel <laughs> to the Mongols, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, so tell us about the breakup. You mentioned it earlier, but the breakup of the Mongol Empire sounds like it was a kind of splintering within, but how this altered, I mean, really, as you talk about in the book, Eurasian po- geopolitics. You mentioned the states of the Great Khans in China, Mongolia, the uh, Ilkhanate in Persia, Near East, the Golden Horde in Western Eurasia, uh, so on and so forth. There's all this eventual displacement. Uh, how did they? How did they kind of end, but then also turn towards you know even more diplomacy in their kind of splintering of sorts? Sure. So yeah, as I mentioned, you've got these ulu, these areas of jurisdiction where the various leading Mongol imperial families have an interest. And in the Middle East, the most powerful dynasty by the late 1250s um, is the dynasty of Hulugu, who staged the last really big invasion into the Middle East. And he founds what becomes known as the Ilkhanate. And then to the north of the Caucasus, in what today would be Russia and parts of Eastern Europe, you have the Golden Horde by a rival Mongol dynasty. And it's in the 1260s that these two wings of the Mongol Empire embark on a ruinous war, which sees the end of the Mongols' explores of expansion into Eastern Europe. They were preparing for a new expansion into Christendom at the time when they turned on each other. And so it is very literally the case that their, their civil wars saved Western Christendom. And even you know, there's there's no one's in any doubt about what would happen if the Mongols did stage a big invasion into Western Christendom. The papacy, the emperor, they all know that no one's going to stop the Mongols. No one's got that kind of force. Mm-hmm. So it is literally this that means that Western Christendom doesn't fall to the Mongols. Mm-hmm. In the Middle East, it's a little bit more complicated, and yet by drawing tens of thousands of Mongol warriors away from the wars of expansion and into this ruinous civil war, that then means the Mongols' wars of expansion end. But there is another factor here too, because when the Mongols invaded Syria 
1260. As I mentioned, they conquered the Ayyubid Empire very quickly. The northern crusader state of Antioch submitted. Kingdom of Jerusalem, tiny state, no hope of defending itself, tried to negotiate. But there is one territory which did not submit to the Mongol and did not um, and had it took a rather different approach. And the background to this is in the year 1250, when the Ayyubids in Egypt, by this stage, they were very dependent on groups of enslaved people they had purchased from the Black Sea region, mm. who they then converted to Islam, who were, if they weren't already Muslim, and then trained to become elite warriors, known as Mamluks. And these Mamluks were the cutting edge of the Ayyubids' armies, enslaved warriors, basically, who made up big regiments, and they played a leading role in defeating the various crusades of this era. But of course, if you have too many regiments like that, then you start to run various risks. And in 1250, those risks became apparent when the Mamluks realized just how much power they had, and so they thought, well, why should we accept the ownership and rule of the Ayyubid dynasty? And so they rose up and killed the Ayyubid sultan and took power for themselves, creating what would become known as the Mamluk sultanate, which survived until the 16th century. So spool 10 years forwards from the Mamluks' um, initial rebellion in Egypt and the foundation of their sultanate, and you've then got the Mongol invasions into the, into the Middle East. Yeah. And the Mamluks are interesting because unlike every single other civilization in the Middle East, they do not wait to be invaded. Yeah. Instead, they put together the biggest army they can, which is about 12,000 strong, and they march out of Egypt, cross the Sinai Desert, yeah. and advance into and advance into the Levantine region. Mm. They ask the Kingdom of Jerusalem if the Kingdom of Jerusalem wants to help them. The Kingdom of Jerusalem plays a diplomatic hand here and says that it will supply, <coughs> su- supply resources, possibly horses, but will not send troops to support the Mamluks. It wants to maintain plausible deniability in case the Mamluks lose, I think. And the Mamluks then advance on the Mongols' main field army which at the time of the invasion of Syria numbered around 100,000 strong. So this is an incredibly gutsy move, but it pays off because the great Khan dies in Mongolia and news reaches the Mongols' main army in Syria only a few months before the Mamluks staged their invasion. And so most of the Mongol army moves east in order to have its say in the election of the next great Khan. And so the Mamluks don't meet the Mongols' main field army. They meet a garrison instead, which they defeat at the Battle of Ain Jalut. And having won the Battle of Ain Jalut, the Mamluks then conquer much of Syria very quickly. And this then marks the beginning of what is often known as the Mongol Ilkhanid War, Mm. which lasts for the next 60 years, as the Mongols try and resume their offensive against the Mamluks, try and defeat the Mamluk Empire but consistently lose. And one of the big factors in why they consistently lose is that the the Mongols in the Middle East, from this point on known as the Ilkhanate, they're fighting a much bigger war 
with the Mongols of the Golden Mongols of the Golden Horde to the north as well. Mm. So they can't focus on the Mamluks to anything like the same degree. And as local factions, this comes back to the whole business of whether resistance is plausible. Mm-hmm. As it becomes clear the Mongols in the Middle East are embattled and increasingly unable to hold down territory, it's then you get rebellions. It's then that cities revolt. It's then that local communities rise up because resistance is plausible. Many of these rebellions are put down with stunning force and enormous loss of life. But people have got hold of the idea that the Mongols are not invincible. They can be resisted. And this is where the Mongol Empire really begins to turn in its fortunes. Internal wars to the north, resistance from the Mamluks to the southwest, and then rebellions within their own territory. And so this is where the Mongols in the Middle East start to really find themselves on the back foot, where for decades previously, they'd been on the front foot. It, with, with this kind of conflict between the Ilkhanite and the uh, Mamluks, where does, you know, especially in the 70s and 80s, how does Armenia become a, a player here during this conflict as well? Because, I mean, they're kind of positioned, you know, uh, unfortunately or unfortunately, whichever you look at it, you know, in between a lot of this stuff, what, what's the role that they play here as well? Yeah, um, from that perspective, very unfortunately, because they're on the frontier between the Mamluk Empire yeah. and the Mongols. Now, of course, they had no idea mm-hmm. that they would find themselves in this predicament and yet they are a Mongol satellite state. They're under Mongol hegemony. They're expected to supply troops for the Mongol army. And of course, they do. They have no choice. This is, this is, this is, this is the role they have accepted for themselves. And yet, as, it, as the decades go by, and as it becomes clear that the Mongols aren't winning this war with the Mamluks, increasingly the Armenians begin to try and do deals with the Mamluks because they realize that, in fact, it's the Mamluks who are winning, it's the Mongols who are losing. So if they want to survive, actually the Mongols can't guarantee their safety in anything like the way they could, could have previously. Um, the, the Armenians don't, in the long run, manage to negotiate their path to safety. And in a series of wars following the conclusion of the mamluk Ilkhanid War, the Mamluks do eventually overrun and destroy Silesian Armenia. Um, and so that the kingdom of Silesian Armenia ends in 1375. It's very, very, very interesting how there's these kind of just, again, stuck between all these different things. And it's very unfortunate. So in the end, <clears throat> you say that interfaith relations, migration, personal ambition, and other variables are at play within all of these groups in the 13th century, which you cover in the book. Listeners will take all of this and say, well, it sounds like a wild time in some ways. Uh, and this will be you know, very interesting. And hopefully it gives people a different perspective on, on, you know, we talk a lot about in today, you know, diversity and things like that. But when people think about Syria, when they think about Turkey, when they think about uh, many of these places in, 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 the, in the East, there are so many ethnic groups and so many people groups and so much history that have contributed. And so, you know, in many ways, it's a, you know, a nation state is such a new thing uh, in, in the world. 
And so to see people having alliances with certain nation states, I mean, it, it makes sense over the maybe the past 100, 150 years, but for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that wasn't the case, right? That, that, that didn't really make sense. And in, and in a lot of ways, you have, you know, people groups that have been, you know, been there for thousands of years that they, they don't really see as an allegiance to, uh, you know, this nation state. It's more of, you know, what, what people group am I from, right? Uh, or it's my history there, yeah. which I think is, is really important to know. Um, even within Turkey, right? Like if you say something like Anatolia, it's like, well, which part of, which part of Anatolia's history do you want to talk about? Because they've had different, I mean, Assyrians were there. You talk about, you know, all the, the Turks that have been there. There's just different groups that have been all throughout just that part of, of, um, of Turkey. So, you know, it's just, I think that's an important thing to remember, but with all of these things that you've discussed, what do you think are the major takeaways here from this time period? You know, you, you, you know, the 13th century, and, you know, how do we, you know, apply that or understand that for many of the things that we see, whether it's conflicts, whether it's, you know, geopolitics, whether it's you know, globalization in some ways, what, the things that we have to deal with today in 20, you know, 23, 2024, um, what, what lessons and takeaways can we learn from a period like this that can help us understand who we are as people and people groups and kind of uh, these entities that we have throughout the world? Sure. Um, yeah. This is, this is, you, you've crossed over several areas here where, um, where I can see my own motivations for writing this book. Because as you do, when, as you meet people and talk to people at conferences or, you know, at family events or whatever, or I don't, I don't know, in, in, in any environment that you, you meet people, the one thing you typically hear about the Middle East that people know is that this is a time of the Crusades. Yeah. And you're, you're often told about the wars of Christianity and Islam. And I think one of the core things I wanted to bring out in this book is just how complex this period is. It is by no means anything like as straightforward as a clash between two rival religions. There's plenty of occasions where you've got Christians and Muslims on both sides. Yeah. And then the Mongols as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who, who at least initially are neither. Um, they, 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 do, they do convert to Islam towards the end of the 13th century, or many, many do. But it's the complexity here. Wars, alliances, treaties, agreements, associations can occur for so many reasons. Religion is just one of those reasons. It's complex. And that's wonderful because it's fascinating and it's complex and it's brutal and it's awful and it's diverse and it's fascinating. And it's just the sheer everything happening at the same time in the same place that makes this region so interesting. You've got gunpowder being brought in from China in the East. You've got silks from Central Asia. You've got new ships and new navigational um, devices being developed or brought into the Mediterranean region. You've got new technologies, new ideas being forged in the Middle East itself. You've got scientific establishments being established by the Mongols because they're interested in science, pooling expertise from across the Middle East and further afield. You've got ambassadors traveling across Eurasia and elsewhere, bringing home news of places that their peoples had never even heard of before, places 
even as far-flung and remote as, who knows, the Kingdom of England, for goodness sake. I mean, how remote can you get? Not to mention, of course, other areas of Central Asia or Southeast Asia or elsewhere. And so much of this traffic of the merchants, displaced people, ambassadors, missionaries, so many of them are passing through the Middle East. So much is changing. So much news and information and technology and goods. It's all changing hands here. Languages. I, this is just scraping the surface. It's all changing. It's all happening here. And so really, one of the ambitions in my book was just to bring out the extraordinary vividness of life. It was not by any means always pleasant. There's, a, so, there's so much loss of life and not just loss of life inflicted by the Mongols. There's suffering, there's persecution, but there's so many other things going on as well. And it's just the, the vividness of this time that I wanted to understand better when I, when I began this as a research project. But you asked me also, what are the take-homes for us in the 21st century? And I've been asked this before, so I'm afraid I'm going to regurgitate my answer because I think it's That's an fine. important one. <laughs> and it goes something like this, that um, if I were to ask you to look at your calendar, I'm guessing that you've probably got a fair number of bookings Oh, whether that's meetings too many, or too many, <laughs> too, too many. Sure. And those those span what a month, two months, six months, uh, a year, two years into the future. Uh, well, not about two years, but uh, I'm definitely a solid, definitely three to four, and some six, but definitely a solid three to four. Yeah, that sounds familiar to me too. I think my I've, I've got a fair number though that are a year away. Mm-hmm. And here's the point that we can do that. Mm -hmm. And isn't that astonishing? Yes. We can be reasonably confident that that on that day, at that time, and in that place, we can be at a certain place and have that certain certain activity, Mm -hmm. whether it's giving a talk or having a meeting, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. I could make, I've recently, just to take a trivial example, I've made an eye appointment for a year's time. (laughs) Just to have a check. Right, right. And I can be reasonably confident I will be able to meet that appointment. Mm-hmm. And so here's my take home, that we live in an environment, certainly in many parts of the West of Europe and America, where we live in an extraordinarily stable society. Mm. And I say extraordinary. It may not feel extraordinary because it's all we've known. But actually, in the great span of history, it is deeply odd that we can live like that mm. because life doesn't work like that. Mm in almost any other period, any other region. Life is much more short-term. You do not know at what point the line of raiders will appear on the hill crest five miles down from your village, mm. and you're just going to have to have to grab the kids and run mm. because that is your only choice. And you do not know when that's going to happen or indeed something less extreme. But my point is that we live in a society where there is extraordinary and unprecedented stability. Mm. What I wanted to better understand in my book is what life looks like in the norm. Mm. And that is in a period where there is no such stability. You couldn't possibly make a booking for a year's time. You won't be able to keep Mm. Or you have no certainty of being able to do so. 
what does life look like then? And what changes when you, when you don't have that certainty, when you can't say what's going to happen in a week, two weeks, six months? How does that affect not just your future planning, but everything else? The way you conceive of the world, the way you live as a family or a community, the way you conduct your work, everything is altered by that. And I wonder, in um, some moments at least, whether we are moving into a time where we'll be able, we won't be able to be quite so certain about what the future holds. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we can glean some insight from other periods of history, I'm not going to go into anything as simplistic as saying history repeating itself or anything like that. But I do think we can certainly learn from other periods of history where we want to better understand what the world may look like in a very different configuration to the one that we were raised in ourselves. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a very, it's a very helpful perspective, I think, for many people too, especially when people say this is such a, uh, uh, it's never been like this before in history, or this is such a, you know, it's like, it's, it's actually the opposite, right? You know, there's, there's, it's always, it's always like this, right? It's always like this. There's nothing really that new about things. But in other cases, it is, you know, in some ways. So it's, it's very interesting to keep that perspective. The uh, book is called The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. This is out through the wonderful basic books. Um, Nicholas, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I was very, very happy reading your book. Very, very happy having the conversation with you. And so I thank you for your time and your energy. And uh, I'm very certain that uh, people will will quite enjoy it. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely.